1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Shruti Dixit, the host of the channel, and today we will be talking to Professor Jonathan Edelman about his book, Hindu Theology and Biology, the Bhagavad Puran and Contemporary Theory, published by the Oxford University Press. John is an assistant professor at, of religion at the University of Florida. The book we are going to discuss was awarded the 2011 John Templeton Foundation Award for Theological Promise, and is known for developing a constructive and comparative theological dialogue between Hinduism and Western Natural Sciences. John, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much.
1: I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself?
0: Sure. I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Florida, and I uh, I do teach courses on Indian religion, Asian religion, philosophy, Asian philosophy, uh, science and religion. Uh, I teach everything from undergraduate, first year undergraduate level courses to all the way up to PhD level students uh, and everything in between. And um, I'm doing research now in the area of Uh, Hindu philosophy, theology, text, kind of a textual history, trying to reconstruct certain ideas from uh, Sanskrit texts primarily and their commentarial traditions, especially from like the 15th and 16th century in North India. That's my uh, has been, and I've got a a, a book project that I'm working on. And I have a family and I, I I live here in in Gainesville, Florida. And um, that, that about sums it up at this point, I would say.
1: It's great to know about you, John. Well, to begin with, I'm intrigued why you use the term worldviews for Bhagavad and Darwinianism.
0: Yeah, so the, there's a couple of issues with the word worldviews. It was a... Um, It was a kind of term of its time, I think. Uh, It was a a term that I I had been taught when I was an undergraduate. I guess uh, around that time I was uh, an undergraduate in philosophy. I did a bachelor's of philosophy, and I engaged with religious studies at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And I'd studied... uh, actually I never really studied with him he was retired by the time I had gotten there but nitty and smart uh, who was uh, very instrumental I believe he's uh, if he was Scottish or Irish I can't remember it but he's from the northern part of the UK but he taught in the University of California at Santa Barbara for, for many years and he had used this word uh, and it, it had been a term I had I had thought about some and I more or less just appropriated or adopted it as a way of attempting to capture some of the philosophical, mythological, historical, narrative, proto-scientific ideas that I, I saw in the Bhagavata Purana, which I was reading and other Hindu and to a certain degree Buddhist texts that I was reading at the time. And it, I also found it as a, a kind of helpful term to create the kind of um, comparative discussion that I, I, I had worked on in that book, because it could be, it was being, and um, it had been applied to, to science as well. So it, it became a kind of uh, a, a bridge term, I guess I would say, this term worldviews as theology, philosophy, myth. I'd see these are all kind of bridge terms in in different ways. Um, And uh, yeah, so as I became interested in this science and religion dialogue, which I also encountered at the University of California in Santa Barbara as an undergraduate, as I began to engage with these topics of science and religion, I just, it was a term that people used at the time. And it's, I think it's probably not used as much right now. And it's not a term that I use too frequently anymore at this point. Um, but I, I found it very helpful uh, as, as kind of creating certain categories um, or dimensions as Ninian and Smart, referred to, but categories I would refer to now that you could subsume or you could um, place under this larger term of a worldview. And then you could use the different elements or categories within this larger thing of worldview as a as a basis for some kind of cross-cultural philosophical discussion that I was I was very interested in. I still am.
1: Definitely. Uh, Worldviews as a term gives us an opportunity to look af- look from a larger perspective. And teachers definitely have a deep imprint on us. So probably uh, your professor gave you the word worldview. So is dialogue he did. possible? He did. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I was wondering... Um, It's very important to ask, is dialogue possible between Hindu theological traditions and contemporary science?
0: Uh, You know, it's, that was the question, so you'd you'd asked me to fill in a little bit of my background. So, you know, this was a question that I was asked many years ago. um, And it was kind of posed to me, again, starting in Santa Barbara. um, I took a class on science and religion. It was an undergraduate level class when I was getting my bachelor's degree and the class was actually taught by a professor of Buddhism and he was interested in William James and uh, Ned Block, different contemporary philosophers of mind and things like that, but he was really interested in looking at the way that Buddhism could potentially engage uh, with the sciences. And I was more interested in Hindu philosophies and histories and things of that nature. So that's when I started to ask the question myself. And I I think I'm still asking the question to this day. And, um, I'm not quite sure I, I have an answer yet. Uh, but, um, over the years, as, as I've engaged with that, that very question, um, I think it, it can be brought into a kind of, a, again, a, a bigger question of what exactly is a dialogue? What it is? What does it in fact mean to um, engage with any text or philosophy or idea, especially one that's uh, older or more obscure or you know outside uh, of one's um, native tradition, especially and, and that might be anything from an ancient Greek texts like plato or aristotle to a medieval hindu or buddhist text whatever but uh for me the, the the bigger question now is what is it what happens when you know living in the 21st century we read something that's uh, coming out of a different or older world and, and worldview and context um my, my my tentative answer is I think there are places that there is this potential for an understanding between uh, India and Europe. That's how I, I think about this now as more of a um, intercontinental kind of or something happening within this larger Eurasian civilization. But, uh, you know, I think there are particular points and I that I tried to highlight in the book that I wrote, particular areas where there are uh, roadblocks, where there's really just two very different ways of looking at the world. And they may be just incommensurable. They may have really nothing much to say to each other at all. But then are there other areas where um, there's a similar interest, a similar concern, a similar enough view about the philosophy and the science that some kind of uh, discussion can happen where there's um, there's an understanding that takes place and that this understanding is is important. It's not a trivial understanding. It's something that informs us more about um, maybe even at the best both both traditions. You know, that's that's my kind of gold standard for answering this question of whether or not dialogue is possible is um, the, the, the kind of thing that I'm looking for at this point is, is as follows. Does this discussion that we're having, if we're looking at an Indian and a European text and philosophy and we're talking about them together, do we understand both of them better Through dialogue or not. It's one thing to say we're gonna engage in a comparative exercise where we're gonna compare to religion, comparative philosophy, whatever comparative science, whatever it might be, and to say that we're gonna we're gonna understand India very well through this, and we're gonna understand some aspect of, of Europe very well. That's that's a nice result, but maybe a better result is that you walk away from this where you Thinking, I understand India in a better in, in a way that I could not have understood India, had I not understood something from the West or from Europe. And now I understand Europe in a way that I could not have understood, had I not engaged with Indian thought. And you know, I, I'm not um, totally settled on on whether a dialogue in the in these senses is, is possible. But I think so, and I think it's something that um, it's something that is very important to students and to uh, scholars and the public, and so it's it should be um, it should be attempted.
1: Thank you for answering that, John. I believe dialogue as a means of understanding each other is definitely definitely food for thought for the audience. So can you speak a little bit about Darwinianism and reception of evolution by natural selection?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so the topics that I take up in the book are, are really informed by my next degree that I took, which was at, at Oxford University when I was a student in Santa Barbara. Um, the John Templeton Foundation had funded... A series of lectures, and there were many, many lectures on science and religion. While I was an undergraduate student, There was a great time to be there because of it. All ty- kinds of topics: science, philosophy, theology, history, art, poly- all kinds of different topics. Uh, but one of the people that really struck me, and I was, uh, was John Hedley Brook, and he gave a talk on Darwinism and its reception. In especially England and the United States, um, English-speaking countries. Uh, So, I wanted to, to study more of that. And he was teaching, and he told me when he when he came, he said, "I'm also I teach a master's program in science and religion." And I applied, and I got in, and I went, and I took the took the degree. And it was a it was a really fast. It was a great time to be there in Oxford as well because uh, there was so much interest in science and religion at the time. And I believe it still is is the case. And so one of the things I learned a lot about was um, the complexity of reception, how complex was the reception of a view like Darwin, Darwin's theory of natural selection, um, where there there were many different types of responses from all different types of people, and that we should not reduce the history of the reception of Darwinism to a single narrative. Um, It wasn't that Darwin was immediately rejected, nor is it the case that he was immediately accepted. It's not that people saw his views as a threat to religion, and it's not the case that everybody saw it as amenable to religion. Rather, in fact, what I learned and uh, what I continue to teach and to see is that there were many, many different types of responses to Darwin. Some that immediately leapt on this as, you know, this is a great new idea for philosophy, for religion, for linguistics, for history, for everything. And there were some that were very, very opposed to it. And there were some that were opposed to certain parts of it and accepted other Parts of it, and it was, it really was a time, uh, and I think Darwinism continues to be a kind of catalyst for, um, for dialogue, for discussion of philosophy, of scientific issues, um, religious issues, all, all types of things. So that was what I learned there, and what I wanted to study then, and what I began to t- touch upon in my book, and is I became interested in how. Indians, especially Hindu Indians, um, responded to Darwinism. And again, what I found is that it was a very, um, Darwinism had a big impact and it was, a, again, a very complicated situation where there were many different types of responses to his thought and people reacted to it in, in very different ways than, than your uh, English speaking people did. Uh, but there were certain patterns that were the same. And one of those patterns was it wasn't easy to say oh, all Hindus accepted evolution or all Hindus rejected evolution or anything in between. It, what you find is that you start reading the, the, the philosophies, especially of some of the noteworthy thinkers and authors of the time. They had all, all different types of views. And I continue to see that to this day. Um, as I teach about these topics and talk with colleagues. People have all kinds of different ideas about it.
1: I'm sure uh, a lot of views exist on Darwinism. As a Hindu, I would say that it is it is a talk we have every day that humans evolved from monkeys. So this exists along with the theological opinion which comes out of the Hindu text and all of that. So I was wondering, what are the different views of mind and consciousness in Bhagavad Puran and Darwinism, and what are the frequently overlooked similarities? And uh, how can these views be reconciled?
0: Okay, uh, so there's a, a lot of questions there. Um, yes, yeah, so for the first, the first, what is the Bhagavata's view? This is something that I, after I wrote that book, that I really began to be. Um, interested in. What is um, the text, say, itself, and then the commentarial traditions? And I've I've focused on a fellow named Sridhar Swami who wrote in the, I think, in probably the early, early 15th century, late 14th century. I think he's probably a Risen. Um, I think he most likely was involved with the Shankara Mutt in Govardhana, in Jagannath Puri. He wrote a, a very well-known commentary on the Bhagavata Purana. became interested in Jiva Goswami, who who read, had read Sridhara and had wrote about him. And I became interested in all kinds of different views that they were connected with, especially those of Shankara and Vachaspati Mishra and all the... The non-duality line of thinking of Indian Hindu philosophy and theology, and I became interested in, to a certain degree, Nyaya, because I think especially Jiva uh, was influenced by Navya Nyaya, um, a prominent school of Indian logic, and it was, it was studied and taught um, where Chaitanya lived in the fifteenth uh, uh, century, sixteenth early and early sixteenth century. Um and then of course there's the Sankhya yoga as well, and that has a, a, a also very long and distinguished history. So I think uh, in terms of the actual text of the Bharata, um it uses the language frequently of Sankhya and yoga um, and those familiar with with that language and and worldview, if you will, um know that it's a kind of a dualistic system. There's a material substance in the, uh, called Prakriti, and Prakriti is a little bit different, Than and this is the kind of the goal of the second chapter of the, of the book that we're talking about today, is to show that there's something unique there in the sense that to the West, it's unique to the West, I believe. Don't, uh, I, I'd be happy to be shown wrong on this, but Prakriti has a kind of mind element, built into it, a sort of subtle mental and intellectual and, ego, and then the ahankara, which you could call the ego, kind of built into it. And then the Sankhya Yoga tradition says that there's something separate and different from that, that they call the purusha, the, the atman or the, you can refer to it as the jiva also, or the, you know, the seer, the drashtar, maybe even the agent. Uh, the Karta Karter, so all these different things, and but that's fundamentally different than in the Bhagavata than this material substance. That seems to be the the and then uh, you know the, the dominant view of the of the Bhagavata, although it it seems to also be aware of Vaisheshika and Nyaya philosophy to a certain degree. Seems to be very aware of uh, Vedanta, especially non dualistic schools of Vedanta. And it's it's a bhakti text as well. It's it's heavily influenced by South Indian bhakti traditions, and um, I think probably Shiva bhakti traditions from North and Central South, North and Central India, North the emerging North Indian bhakti traditions. It's influenced by all of that. So, unlike these the traditional classical Sankhya Yoga, say of Ishvara Krishna or the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali and all the commentaries on that, the Bhagavata Sankhya Yoga affirms some kind of purusha or self. That's more than just a, a witness as you, as you get in Sankhya Yoga. In Sankhya Yoga, the, the self is really just a witness. It doesn't really interact directly with materiality. It just watches materiality. And once it's separated from materiality the self of the Sankhya Yoga really is, there's not much left. It's just a uh, pure witness, but not a witness of anything. So it's a seer with no seen object, no sensation. And that's all that the Sankhya Yoga tradition wanted to say about the self, uh, the Atma, the Purusha in its tradition. Whereas the, the Bhagavata Sankhya Yoga, it, coming, I, I believe, it, perhaps as much as a millennium later, in the classical Sankhya Yoga um, affirms a, a, a Purusha, which is very active, it has a lot of, it's a, a soul that has a, a kind of being and personality. And um, so it, it, it takes the basic ontological or metaphysical framework of Sankhya Yoga, but adds to it. Uh, a kind of a devotional concept and a, a very personal um, to use a, a term of, uh, a colleague of mine Jan of Bankston. it's a personalism the self ends up being a um, you know having a body and, and engaging directly with with god and, and as typical to the bhakti traditions so that that maybe addresses um your question about the uh the Bhagwata's view. And then all of course, as I said, I've I've been interested more recently in how the views of the Bhagavata have been developed in the comment on the commentaries. Um, but I think you'd, you'd had also asked about the um, Darwinian yeah, views was, of consciousness. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and what are the frequently overlooked similarities, yeah.
0: Okay, so Darwinism is maybe a bit of a more difficult thing to capture because you know, Darwinism as a philosophy or as a, as a science is not really talking about what we would call consciousness so much, but about Darwin and and Darwinists and interested in the, the biological processes and biological form and structure. Um, whether it's the, you know, the, the way plants and animals organize colonies or the way that, uh, you know, bacteria work or whatever and I think it's Darwinism itself Darwin himself really had not much to say about the soul he was okay with the idea that um, that life had emerged naturally some kind of natural process and then it evolves and develops over time um, this in the West contradicts seems to contradict or problematize at least the the notion that the self is made in the image of god the imagio dei doctrine which is a rational view that the self the soul is rational like god the soul is rational we are rational creatures whereas animals are not necessarily that had been the classical greek view and then the sort of traditional christian and i think to a large extent the, the jewish and islamic view as well I'm not, entirely sure um, Darwinism and Darwinist uh, may adopt a uh, some sort of reconciliation between classical Western philosophical and religious views in some cases and some uh, may adopt a more what I've called the physicalism or a naturalistic or a, a materialistic view of consciousness that basically As I describe, I I think also in the second chapter of the book, basically that um, whatever the nature of life is, it's fully dependent on the body and the functioning brain. And uh, it has to have that to exist. And if once the brain and the body stop working, then there's that thing that we call life ends permanently. It doesn't ever come back. Now, now maybe some are, want to say that you can take the information that is the self this, and maybe transfer it to another substrate, some kind of uh, computer for example, but they will also nevertheless agree that whatever we call this thing life it is fully dependent on materiality in some way. So there are really two different views, the Hindu view. And this is really contradictory to all Indian religious views, Jain and Buddhist. Um, I don't know about Zoroastrian, but uh, Sikh as well. And and I would say this is true of Indian Islam and Christianity, but all the, the native Indian views say that whatever this self is, the consciousness, the Atman, it can exist independent of the physical body that's why it re, that's how it can reincarnate it has to be able to separate in some way from the body most i would say it's maybe I, I exaggerate too much but i'd say at least it's fair to say many contemporary darwinists and and philosophers and people who look at these topics would probably lean much more towards a, a some form of materialism Others might espouse some kind of reconciliation between a Christian or a, a Jewish or an Islamic, um, what, what have you, some kind of view of that the, the soul is rational and some kind of relates with, with the body in some way that doesn't contradict Darwinism. People have worked these things out um, in various ways. Um, so again, the answer is um, it's a fairly complicated situation when you talk about how Darwinists and theologians and philosophers and anthrop whatever have have reacted to Darwin? It's a little bit complicated. Now the area of overlap. This is this is a difficult question because from what I, I'd said before, I think I think to have a kind of comparative discussion that's fruitful, there has to be some common ground. You you need to share some kind of understanding with one another to agree on something mm-hmm. and if you've got this Indian view that says that whatever consciousness is it can exist independently of a physical body and a brain and if, if you've got a Darwinian view that says it can't it's really kind of a conversa- conversation stopper uh, there's not much more you can say at that point other than yeah, okay, two different views have nothing to do with one another um, the the way that I have approached this this issue then and the way that I look at it now is is as follows uh, the more I and maybe this was influenced by my reading of um, Western philosophical ideas that really advocate a kind of physicalism. Um, materialism but the more i look at the hindu views um i'm led to think that what they are actually saying is that whatever this thing called the self is it upon identifying they call it the ahankara upon appropriating I, i like the word appropriating as well upon appropriating a particular physical body that this thing called the self really takes on all of the character characteristics and, and properties of that body through this thing called the ahankara the ego and that once the that physical body dies and this self goes on to identify or appropriate a, a new body as is the doctrine of reincarnation and all of the Ancient Native Indian religions. Um, it then begins the whole process anew, and it, it reappropriates a new body, and all the stuff that happened with the old body is gone, to a large degree. The memories, they just die with the brain and the body, the the, the connections. And to me, the question is, what does the what do the Indian philosophies say is transferred over and, um, when the bo- when the self goes into a new body? And um, I don't know if that creates a, a potential for any kind of constructive philosophical engagement between the two. But um, the, the the best answer that I have. Um, at this point is that what the Indian traditions are saying is that you you don't need to, to disbelieve the idea that the relationship between thought, consciousness, and body or brain is very, very tightly wound, and that's really the the argument that I, I think I make in chapter two of, of the book, is that um, it appears to me, at least in the Hindu texts that I was studying, and have continued to study, that you know th- this idea that what we call ourself right now, in this state of the ahankara of the ego, or what they also call ignorance, the state of avidya. Um, whatever we call ourselves now is very much defined by the body and um because the body produces uh thoughts and and it contains memories and intellect and you know powers of cognition decision making all of the things that people in say neuroscience philosophy of mind darwinistic views about biology and self, all of these people are interested in those, those topics as am I, um, you know, how does the brain create our experience of the world? I'm very, in I don't think the, the, the argument that I end up making in chapter two is that despite the fact that Indian texts, this, this Hindu texts, especially, are affirming some kind of reincarnation model where this, this consciousness can, separate from and move on to another body nevertheless in terms of what we might call embodied consciousness or just living just being in a body having a body the human experience is um is very much defined by the physical body and the brain and all the 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 aspects of it um and so it the argument would be that i've made is that for the uh, people interested in Indian philosophy, uh, that um, this dialogue is possible because of this common concern of dissol- really understanding very scientifically this relationship between consciousness, I I call it embodied consciousness, but consciousness and the physical substrate, the brain especially that's my That's my answer thus far,
1: yeah thank you so much for uh, answering this question in such an expansive manner, John. I hope that's so helpful for all, all the audience that's that's here with us today. Ah, uh, moving on, uh, in what ways have the Hindu theologians articulated relationships between the instruments of knowledge, especially with reference to testimony and personal experience?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's another major roadblock that I see potentially between religion and science, this discussion between religion and science, but also in particular with regard to, with Hinduism, because Hinduism affirms, um, for many have affirmed this idea that there is a, a what they call Shabda Pramana, this, uh, What you might call a linguistic scriptural authority, linguistic authority, the the authority of the word, and this the authority of the word um, on all matters. Now, the the real question is does the the authority of the word cover topics like science uh, that are engageable through what the Hindu texts call sense, perception, and reason, or uh, pratyaksha and anumana. Um, very complicated answers. Again, there's just so many different ways that, that people answer these questions, and it um, continues to be a, a debate, and it, it certainly was in um, the time of the, the composition of the Bhagavata Purana and, and all the commentaries after it. Many different types of, of answers, the tradition I was, I was working in particular takes a very, uh, tradition, what we might call conservative traditional religious view that the, the text that this Hindu text, especially the Bhagavata Purana, it is an authority. It, It, the, the language of the text can trump, if you will, other types of authorities, especially sense perception and reason. And, um, And, you know, that that raises uh, problems because that's not how science functions in any way. Um, that's not what, that's not even really how philosophy or th- you know, a large degree theology is conducted in the contemporary world. Um, so that, that was something that I wanted to look at in, in the book as well. But, yeah the 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 answer to your direct answer to your question what is the uh how do different hindu thinkers uh, theologians respond and the answer is many many different sorts of ways and it continues to amaze me how much attention was given to this topic in the history of india
1: thank you john um so moving to the last question, in chapter five, you talk about some closer uh, comparisons, parallels of objectivity and testimony to implicate how we can view science and religion as sharing some important epistemological values. Can you elaborate a bit on it?
0: Sure. Yeah, so this, is, um, this was the probably my favorite part of, of doing the whole book. And just to bring it back to my, you'd, you'd asked me to talk about my education, and just to bring it back to my education, when, when I was in, in England, I studied in England, There was, um, I was part of a center called the Ian Ramsey Center. I participated, the Ian Ramsey Center for the Study of Science and Religion, um, and my, my college was Harris, Harris Manchester College, and the person I was working with, John Headley Brooke, really directed me towards... Um, a lot of people um, from many different faith traditions—Christian, Jewish, mainly Christian, Jewish, and Islamic—I would say, kind of in that order as well. Mainly Christian, some Jewish, and, and a few more, a few Islamic thinkers, um, who were also some of the world's leading scientists. That's what I, I found. They—they they may have been, you know, a professor of biology at. Cambridge or Harvard or a leading school in California or Texas or whatever but you know they were also interested in their their religious tradition in some way and that kind of opened me up to a world i hadn't really seen before which was uh, a world of functioning scientists i would call a lot of times at, at where I was, really kind of top of top of the line. The most high-functioning scientists of all different types, not even biologists, physicists, anthropologists, linguists, um, people interested in all kinds of topics. And um, so I saw that there was, th- there was this common interest among these people in both their religion and their science. Um, and what I wanted to do in the... In the to look at in the Hindu texts is to see exactly where was this overlap. And that's, that was really the, the culminating chapter there that I saw that what I called teleology, that the Hindu traditions that I was studying did see the way that I saw with the Western thinkers that I was interacting with, did see the development of their religious faith and tradition as augmented or supported by a a deep understanding of nature as well, a a kind of scientific understanding. So I call this a kind of common teleology, common interest in the sense that the traditions, there were certain people within them and certain texts and, and histories within these different traditions that they whether they disagreed about this, that, or the other view, there was this common belief that we can resolve, that these questions about science and religion and nature and uh, supernature, whatever's beyond nature, these are all important questions that we should investigate using human reason and the, the best scientific tools of our time. And I saw that common interest there. And I think that the, the conclusion of the, of the book is really that what I wanted to end with was that what I saw in the Hindu traditions I was working with was this um, other important sensibility, which is a willingness to be wrong and to revise. That's kind of what I see as the great mystery of science and the great power of science. Is it's always it's willing to discard beliefs that have been proven false, and there's a process that they that is thought about and refined for for uh, falsifying and for evaluating and improving human knowledge. And the more I looked at Hindu texts, I saw that this is both a problem for the, for some Hindu thinkers and also not a problem. That there are cases in history of Hinduism in the history of Hinduism, uh, where people were willing to revise and discard old beliefs in light of new knowledge. And that there were even within the Hindu traditions, linguistic theories, theories about, I guess we call them epistemologies, or views about knowledge in the text that seemed to support this, that um, gave a kind of justification uh, for discarding ideas that don't make sense um, that in light of new knowledge or in light of a new understanding of things. So that's why that's where I left the book is that you can dig out of both traditions um, two things: um, a common interest in the study of science and nature together, and also a, a common interest in taking the result of that study very seriously and, if need be, discarding beliefs that just no longer make sense in in light of new evidence.
1: Thank you, John. I believe all we need for curating a dialogue is a common interest, and you did find that in the book. So, well, thank you so much for answering these questions, which are only a few among the... Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, which are only... These questions are only the few... (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There are many other questions that our audience would like to know probably later. So, John, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I must ask you, what are you working on now?
0: Sure. Thank you. Um, Mainly for the past few years, I've been interested in commentaries, learning the Sanskrit language uh, and learning how... Commentaries uh, functioned, um, how they approached texts, and what they said. So, um, been doing some work on Jiva Goswami, reading a lot of of his work, and um, looking at just different topics. Uh, the I guess you would call it the the Gaudiya Vaishnava or the Chaitanya Vaishnava tradition, which, as I I'd kind of alluded to in the beginning, very learned people who were. Aware of a lot of different, um, at their you know e- ancient traditions and, and medieval traditions of things in aesthetics and epistemology and um, logic and uh, narratives and all kinds of different issues. So I've been I've been interested and in, I've been writing about um, about their views on, on different topics. Uh, And more recently, I'm interested in returning to this this kind of comparative approach, this time more directly engaging with the history of Christian and Greek philosophy and theology. And so people like Aquinas and Aristotle and and, um, all of the people that they were interested in. And of course, once you do that, you you have to contend with and engage contemporary understandings of of both of them. I'm really, they're mediated by the the teachers that I'm working with now, people I'm studying now. But uh, I'm writing a book right now in which I'm extending, kind of using a similar type of approach as in the first book where I'm isolating certain topics, issues, ideas, especially philosophical topics, things related to knowledge and uh, now ethics and beauty and ontology, the nature of things. But I'm pulling out certain topics and finding those areas of common concern. It may not be the case that both traditions or both thinkers, Uh, I'm kind of working mainly with Jiva and Aquinas, but also the the extended worlds around them. It may not be the case that they agree. It's probably not going to be the case that they totally agree. But I'm looking for those areas of common concern and interest, highlighting where they do agree, where they differ, but showing how they took a particular idea a particular intellectual concern, and and developed it, and hopefully, again, as with the first book, um, hopefully the fruit of that labor will be that we can have an enriched understanding of of both sides that would not have been possible had we had we read them alone. That's those are my kind of current projects
1: well they sound like great projects and i wish you luck for all your coming ventures thank you i want to thank you yeah i want to thank you for being on the show john i really enjoyed it also thanking the audience for constantly supporting us keep reading keep listening keep enjoying bye take care
0: thank you so much bye bye